Hello, and welcome to the CFA Society San Francisco podcast, where we interview and discuss current topics with leading members of the Bay Area investment community. This week, Tanya Subatang, Senior Membership Manager with CFA Society San Francisco, sits down with Lily Taft CFA, Portfolio Manager for Main Street Research. Listen in as they discuss RIA trends in wealth management and client relationships. Good morning, Lily. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Tanya. So I'm very, very excited to have our conversation today and really kind of dive in into a sector that we, I feel like we don't talk enough about. So just to kind of have our listeners understand where your background is, you are currently the portfolio manager at Main Street Research for the past five years. But today we are going to be focusing on wealth management and the industry trends. But most importantly, we're going to talk about the relationship aspect that you have with clients in that industry, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of times we get caught up in talking about portfolio management, picking stocks, picking sectors. And such a big and fun part of the wealth management business is having relationships with end clients. So I thought we'd dive a little bit deeper into that part of the business today. Sounds good. Um, Well, why don't we start? Can you tell me a bit about the industry you work in and what trends are currently impacting it? Sure. So I work at a mid-sized boutique wealth management firm. We are a Registered Investment Advisor, or RIA for short. The name of my firm is Main Street Research. We manage about $2 billion in client assets. We are headquartered in Sausalito, right here in the Bay Area, uh, but we do have a bi-coastal presence as well. So I do sit on the Investment Co- Policy Committee and directly manage the money, but I also have my own clients. I directly get to work with these clients, advise them, learn about their life, and you know, admit Admittedly, wealth management has sort of this picture as being a less sexy, less exciting business for young people to join, especially when you compare it to maybe fintech or some of these other growth areas that are top of mind, particularly here in the Bay. But there's so many fun things to talk about within wealth management. I'm personally really excited about the opportunities available to me as a young professional and the developments in the industry. And sure, you you do work with older retirees mostly, <laughs> but uh, that is sometimes it's really part of the fun. You get to help these families, foundations too, and building educational relationships is so rewarding. And it's natural, at least for me, it is to build those relationships, have bespoke financial planning sessions, and actually acting as a fiduciary. A fiduciary, mm-hmm. if you don't know, is someone who is legally bound to act in the best interest of their clients. We are sort of returning to the fiduciary standard in wealth management. Um, A few decades ago, wealth management at the large wirehouse firms sometimes meant just cross-selling financial product. And the fiduciary standard was not necessarily top of mind. Profit motivations can often have that effect. 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the wirehouse model, but I do think that these conflicts of interest have started to lead the shift towards more independent firms and working at RIAs, such as the one I work at. So that's part of it. The other part of it is probably the fact that clients are just getting a more white glove tailored experience at smaller firms. I don't actually have the precise number of asset flows out of traditional wirehouse firms, such as, you know, a Merrill Lynch or a Wells Fargo, but it truly is staggering how many clients are going towards the more regional boutique and they're not compromising their service or their performance by leaving at Premier Firm. Actually, they're getting usually a better experience at a local company. And I don't think it's actually the clients that are driving this trend. I do think it really comes back to the employees. Mm -hmm. The employees are honestly having a better work experience at the RIAs and that they Therefore, in turn, helps them service their clients better. So this trend towards boutique RIAs, you know, it's been happening for quite some time now. It's not new. And because it's been happening for so long, now these sorts of aggregator RIAs have started to pop up. So these aggregators, they consolidate boutiques, they engage in lots of M&A activity. And they're interesting because they do give financial advisors more flexibility than a wirehouse firm does. They give the advisors the ability to act as a fiduciary, but they also sometimes have a hard time with retention of both employees and clients. The spirit of really building relationships and staying in touch with your clients can be hard when you do get too large as an aggregator. Mm -hmm. So the aggregators are in this weird purgatory between your traditional RIA boutique shop and the large wirehouse. They kind of struggle to differentiate themselves because they're not really either. And I actually, I did pick out a couple of industry trends for you to kind of color in some of these shifts from the Charles Schwab RIA benchmarking study. They're about to come out with a new study. So this data is from 2016 to 2021, but assets under RIA management grew at a 14% annualized rate. And and inorganic growth from the more aggregator type firms was also really strong at about 27% of firms hiring an advisor already with an existing book of business. So as you can see, there's just a ton of growth in wealth management and a huge opportunity at RIAs. I feel super lucky to be a female leader at an independent firm that just cares about its clients. I get to learn stories about the people I work with. I get to you know talk with software engineers real estate agents, moms, school <laughs> foundations. I get to help them understand, you know, how are they going to achieve their long-term goals? What family vacation are they planning? Where are the kids going to college? All that sort of stuff. So, you know, there is just such a satisfaction in the relationship part of the job. Of course, I love exercising the more quantitative CFA-oriented part of my brain, but and having both of those skill sets, the, the hard skills and the soft skills, that's a huge challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity for young people. And I think specifically young women who are usually attracted to jobs that include some of those softer skills. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So it really is, it's just so much more than building models and portfolios and plans, which is, I think, part of the image that young women professionals get when they kind of start in this industry or in finance at all. Sounds like a very great balance. And it seems to be a really great industry to kind of really immerse yourself in. So you touched this a little bit earlier, but are there clear drivers of these trends and is regulation impacting at all? That is a very, very good question. Uh, from a compliance perspective, there are definitely differences between the large wirehouse firms, the RIA aggregators, and then the boutique independent RIAs. But regardless of what t- type of firm you work at, we are still in the most regulated industry in the world, right? Financial services has a ton of regulation, particularly in the post-08 world that we operate in. And the bigger wirehouse firms, they have had to adapt. Regulation has hit them harder and they've had to pay a lot of fines over the years for being non-compliant in different areas. And the difference between the way compliance is run at an independent RAA and a wirehouse firm is really, really really stark. It actually does affect the employee experience, which like I mentioned, in turn affects the client experience. And obviously, all regulation is well-intentioned. I'm not here to say that regulation in our industry is bad. That's not the point at all, but it is a clear driver. It's so relevant of you to bring it up because being compliant for some advisors actually has come at the expense of sharpening their craft and advising their clients. Maybe even at the expense of growing their business. And that's because at large firms, they often create these blanket rules and they don't necessarily make exceptions even when an exception would be okay from a regulatory perspective. Actually, I think an anecdote might be very applicable here to help paint this picture. I have this mentor who has been working in the industry for decades. He worked at one of the large wirehouse firms and he's been sending a quarterly newsletter to his clients for decades. His most popular newsletter is one that he only sends out about every five years. And he talks about industry trends with the youngest generation. So this is something obviously that sometimes he gets wrong, sometimes he gets right. (laughs) But you know, it is so relevant for clients to hear about these updates because they get to see in their kids' lives, are these trends something that they're experiencing at home? Are these products and services that they use? It allows them to sort of weigh in on these trends and think about investing in the context of their own life, which is really the relationship part of the job. This is the fun part, right? (laughs) But he recently told me that he can no longer send out this newsletter. Again, it's his most popular newsletter. And it's simply because there was just too much red tape associated with it for his at his warehouse firm. And he just decided not to send it anymore. So obviously, this is just one story. And there's plenty of different experiences between 
advisors, but at a larger firm, at a brand name firm, you really do have to question every email you send. Sometimes you might get distracted with following the protocol rather than doing right by your clients and engaging them with uh, industry trend newsletters or whatever it is for your practice. I mean, forgetting to, to log a call even or any sort of small mishap in protocol can actually result in termination sometimes. So like I said, there's just a lot of red tape. Even hosting an educational seminar can be just impossible at these types of firms. You're often bound to cookie cutter content, which again, that's not helping you build a relationship, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the unique content that helps you differentiate yourself as an advisor. Obviously, I am biased here, but I do think you can really see how one business model allows for more organic creativity and passion in the job. Mm -hmm. So is there any part of the industry or your job specifically that's driven by the end client? Yeah, you know, the part of the relationship building and the white glove service aspects of the business that we've mentioned, obviously, end clients love all of that. But the customization of the actual investments, I think is also a strength of the blossoming RIA industry. Any good financial advisor knows that managing money is not just about you know creating a target asset allocation and changing it over time as the client ages. That's really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more nuances to it based on the client situation, based on the health of the overall economy. For example, at, at my firm, we believe that there are times when an aggressive mid-30s, high-income earning individual should not be fully invested in risk assets, even though maybe that would be the traditional approach. For retirees, it's even more important to manage risk asset. Right now, risk management is a demand that we're seeing from end clients more and more, particularly in the aftermath of COVID, even right now in the midst of this bear market cycle. And so industry trends and demands from end clients, they really can be driven by that sort of investor psychology that we're also familiar with. It changes as the market cycle progresses. Individuals get concerned with risk during more challenging markets and exuberant about investment gains and following industry trends during better markets. But you know, no matter what point you're in, in the business cycle, risk management is always important. So I do hope that kind of these back-to-back bear markets, the COVID bear market, and then again, the 2020 inflation interest rate hiking cycle will keep risk management top of mind for clients. We're always internally at least talking about exogenous shocks and how to model risk and ensuring that there's always a a process in place, always a financial plan in place. And I really do hope that this sort of trend towards risk management from end clients sticks. Uh, We will have to see. But there's also refinement beyond just asset allocation, risk management, that sort of thing that can be made at the individual client client level that will help you get even more granular and specific and continue to build that relationship with your clients. So for example, you're in the Bay Area, everyone has a client who likely works at a publicly traded tech company and has stock-based compensation, or maybe you have a friend in that sort of situation. And you can really get so granular with these types of plans beyond just the classic plan to diversify that 
concentrated risk over time. You can build an intentional, diversified, less correlated portfolio of individual securities that will mold and fit nicely with existing exposures. You can hedge an appropriate amount of a concentrated position. These are just a couple of bespoke wealth management services and ideas that at one point were only available to ultra, ultra high net worth clients, but they can add value to families in all different leagues of wealth. So accessibility is not just growing from technology improvements. I think it is the RIA business model, the desire of advisors to create sticky relationships with their clients. And that's great for employees and clients. But to be fair, you know, I get really excited about these sorts of offerings and customizations. This is not the normal. A lot of RIAs do not engage in this level of customization. There are plenty of firms that pool their clients' funds and there's nothing wrong with that. You can still create a great relationship with your client in a pooled investment vehicle, but separately managed accounts, I think, have sort of this unique value proposition and can differentiate firms as well. So can you now talk a little bit about the differentiation, because you kind of mentioned that, between competitors in an evolving but previously commoditized industry? And do you think that investment philosophy, strategy, and returns are key differentiating factors? Yes. (laughs) There's a lot of RIAs out there and differentiation does become challenging. In fact, there's thousands of RIAs around the country and a lot of them do offer very similar services. You know, we've talked a lot already about why the relationship part of the business and the service part is so critical, but so are the investments. That is what clients come to us first and foremost is the investing part of the equation. And so that's where people can differentiate themselves as well. There's sort of this passive investment strategy that dominated the active passive debate lately, particularly with the proliferation of index funds. So I think there is something to be said for differentiation away from that maybe sort of a proprietary active management approach can be interesting here, especially in such a volatile market where stock returns are so bifurcated. And actually, in that vein, breaking down a company's financial statements is almost a lost art, which we all learn about as CFA charter holders. But And it's so fun to me because Mm -hmm. I am so attracted to the opportunity to beat the market. (laughs) And it's so sad, actually, to me how much research Research is focused on macroeconomics. So many advisors crave information like interest rate projections, inflation data, other economy-wide figures. The macro focus probably does have something to do with the proliferation of index funds and, and a more passive approach. There's nothing wrong with that again, but I do think that active approach can become a differentiator. And so having a very well thought out process to manage investments, having a philosophy for different scenarios, a strategy for different scenarios can differentiate yourselves regardless of your returns, which will be lumpy no matter what, whether it's active or passive. (laughs) I hope that kind of helps answer that question about differentiating. You're right, though. It is kind of a commoditized business at the end of the day. and, And that's why the relationships are so important. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Lily, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your expertise. I think we all learned a little bit more in regarding to wealth management, but most importantly, the importance of the relationship with our clients. It was a pleasure talking with you today and hearing all about what you have to share. Thank you for having me. Hope to do this again. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the CFA Society San Francisco podcast. We hope you enjoyed the engaging discussion. Please stay tuned for more episodes of this podcast published on the last Tuesday of the month in our newsletter and through the CFA Society San Francisco podcast channel, available through most major podcast apps.